Welcome to Music History Monday for November 29th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is What to Do About Otello. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. Before getting to the question that drives today's post, we would recognize five date-worthy events, a tragedy, two notable cancellations, and two notable opera performances. First, the tragedy. On November 29th, 2001, 20 years ago today, George Harrison died in Los Angeles of lung cancer at the age of 58. Born in Liverpool on February 25, 1943, Harrison was the youngest of the Beatles, just 16 years old when he joined up in 1959. Though not known for his songwriting early on, Harrison's contributions to the band's repertoire came to rival those of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Harrison contributed four songs to the Beatles' second-to-last album, released in November of 1968 and nicknamed The White Album for its plain white cover. Among those four songs is the exquisite When My Guitar Gently Weeps, the recording of which features Eric Clapton on lead guitar. Harrison's two contributions to the Beatles' final album, Abbey Road, released in 1969, are both rock classics. Here comes The Sun and Something. John Lennon declared that Something was the best song on the album, and it is the second most covered Beatles song after Paul McCartney's Yesterday. The famously anti-rock and roll Frank Sinatra recorded Something twice, in 1970 and 1979. According to Old Blue Eyes himself, Harrison's Something is, quote, the greatest love song of the past 50 years, unquote. For Harrison, musical life continued after the Beatles. His final album, Brainwashed, was released posthumously in 2002, a year after his death. Harrison's work as a humanitarian and political activist was fully as admirable as his music and would require an entire post by itself to detail. Let it suffice for now the following. George Harrison used the bully pulpit given him by the Beatles to do great and enduring things for people across the planet. When his metastatic cancer took him, the world lost not just a great musician, but a great human being. Cancellations. Two canceled performances on this date demand our attention, if only briefly. On November 29, 1976, the Sex Pistols were due to play a gig in Lancaster, England. My Music History Monday post for February 1st of this year profiled the Sex Pistols and, in particular, its bass player, Simon John Ritchie, best known 
by his stage name as Sid Vicious, 1957-1979. With Sid in the vanguard, the Sex Pistols were the punkiest of the punks, virtually indistinguishable in sight, smell, and sound from a manure fire. When the members of the City Council of Lancaster got wind of that fire, I mean of the band's scheduled appearance, they demanded the appearance be canceled, gently explaining that, quote, we don't want that sort of filth in the town limits, unquote. Well, okay then. On November 29, 1997, 24 years ago today, Whitney Houston canceled a concert just two hours before she was scheduled to appear. She had discovered that the concert, sponsored by the Unification Church, founded by Sun Myung Moon, was to be part of a mass wedding for over 1,000 Mooney couples. The organizers took Houston's sudden cancellation well, meaning that they didn't threaten to sue, provided that Houston return her $1 million concert fee, which she did. Earth to Moonies. I would have taken the gig for half that price and a small piece of wedding cake. Just saying. Opera performances. Finally, two date-worthy operatic performances. On this date in 1825, the first Italian opera ever to be performed in the United States was performed in New York City, Gioacchino Rossini's The Barber of Seville. On this date in 1948, the Metropolitan Opera made its first television broadcast, presenting Giuseppe Verdi's Otello. The performance was conducted by Fritz Busch and featured in the leading roles Lucia Albanese as Desdemona, Ramon Vinay as Otello, and Leonard Warren as Iago. Not that you need to hear this from me, but we live in troubling times. For the remainder of this post, we're going to stay with Verdi's Otello. And I'm going to do something that, despite my own strong opinions, I rarely do on this site. I am going to wade into the identity politics and culture wars that are, in their own way, shredding the very fabric of our academic and performing arts institutions. I generally avoid this stuff here on Patreon, not because I'm a coward, but because, believe it or not, I prefer to keep things on the site as positive and non-judgmental as possible, as a safe place for everybody. But not today. I am well aware that if I were in academia today, I'd be drawn and quartered within, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes? I would deserve such punishment because my crimes would be horrific. Maybe I would use the wrong pronoun in addressing one of my students. Or perhaps I'd drop a sly sexual double entendre during a conversation about the music that celebrated the presumed virginity of Queen Elizabeth I. Maybe I'd be foolish enough to mention Tchaikovsky's homosexuality and cross-dressing, 
or Schubert's death due to syphilis, likely acquired from an underage male prostitute. Or perchance, I'd ask my students to watch a video of Laurence Olivier performing the role of Othello in Shakespeare's Othello in preparation for a course on Verdi's opera Othello. Okay, I will fess up. I used to teach a graduate seminar on Verdi's Othello at the San Francisco Conservatory in the 1990s, and I did require my students to watch Olivier's brilliant performance as Othello, filmed in 1965, during the first week of the class. Opera is drama set to music, and to my mind, nothing can prepare someone better for an exploration of Verdi's and Arrigo Boito's Italian language adaptation of Othello better than watching Shakespeare's English language original. So thought the Chinese-born American composer, pianist, conductor, and MacArthur Foundation fellow, Bright Sheng, born 1955. A necessary acknowledgement? I know Bright. He is a fine man and a wonderful composer. We stay in touch as Facebook friends. A member of the music faculty at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor since 1995, in September of this year, Sheng began a class about adapting literary texts into opera by playing Laurence Olivier's 1965 performance of Shakespeare's Othello. Instant firestorm. I quote in part an article by Jennifer Schusler that appeared in the New York Times on October 15th, 2021. Quote, students said they sat in stunned silence as Olivier appeared on screen in blackface makeup. Even before class ended 90 minutes later, Group chat messages were flying, along with at least one email of complaint to the department, reporting that many students were, quote, incredibly offended both by this video and by the lack of explanation as to why this was selected for our class, unquote. Oh, Ms. Schusler continues, quote, within hours, Professor Shang had sent a terse email issuing the first of what would be two apologies. Then, after weeks of emails, open letters, and canceled classes, it was announced on October 1st that Professor Shang was voluntarily stepping back from the class entirely in order to allow for a, quote, positive learning environment, unquote. To some observers, it's a case of campus cancel culture run amok, with overzealous students refusing to accept an apology. To others, the incident is symbolic of an arrogant academic and artistic old guard and of the deeply embedded anti-black racism in classical music. In an email to the New York Times, Professor Sheng, 66, reiterated his apology. From the bottom of my heart, I would like to say that I am terribly sorry, he said. But to the students, for some, it was their first class at the university. It was simply a shock. Quote, I was stunned, unquote, Olivia Cook, a freshman, told the Michigan Daily, 
adding that the classroom was, quote, supposed to be a safe place, unquote. Our sincere advice to the aforementioned Ms. Olivia Cook. Get over the victim bit and quickly, because it's a fact that there is no safer place in the world where 18-year-olds are more coddled and pampered than in the classrooms of an American liberal arts university. I would encourage you all to read the article as it gets into the issues more deeply and with greater nuance than my quotation might indicate. Now it's my turn. Nowhere in Jennifer Schusler's The New York Times article is there any sense of outrage for the vicious and public thrashing suffered by Bright Shang and the insufferable degree of privilege and historical ignorance exhibited by the poor, traumatized children. I mean students, university students, who were exposed to something as horrific and emotionally devastating as Laurence Olivier's performance of a Shakespeare classic. Oh, the humanity! I would take still further issue with the article's author, Jennifer Schusler, for stating her own unsupported prejudices as fact in the body of the article. When she writes without example or support that, quote, the incident is symbolic of the deeply embedded anti-black racism in classical music, unquote, she is adopting a tiresome and reactionary trope that all Western classical music and opera are inherently and intrinsically racist. No, they are not. Bright Shang's mistake, and it was a doozy, was not having created a context for the film before he pressed play. Context. Shakespeare's Othello and Verdi's Otello is a dark-skinned Moor, a North African, not because Shakespeare was a racist or a Moorist, but because Othello's skin color and ethnic background was, for Shakespeare, a metaphor. It is a metaphor for the eternal outsider, someone who struggled to be part of a white, Christian, European community, someone whose skin color inspired fear and loathing among the wicked, someone whose personal demons and sense of moral and physical apartness could be manipulated by evil. Of course Othello was traditionally played by a white person in makeup. The number of dark-skinned Shakespearean actors was, we would hazard to guess, limited between, say, 1603, when Shakespeare wrote Othello, and, say, 1950. Of course, Verdi's Othello was traditionally sung by a white person in makeup. The number of dark-skinned operatic tenors was, again, rather limited between 1887, the year of Othello's premiere, and, say, 1970. Calling Othello's slash Otello's traditional makeup blackface is entirely misleading and unnecessarily incendiary, even intellectually dishonest. Blackface, as currently understood in the United States, is an artifact of American minstrelsy, 
during which white performers blacked up in order to caricature, mock, and belittle people of African descent. There's no such mocking going on in either Shakespeare's Othello or Verdi's Othello. Oh, on the contrary, Othello himself is a powerful, intensely moral, and deeply human character, a military hero and a statesman who has overcome every conceivable obstacle only to be brought down by the demons buried within himself, demons that he thought he had mastered. Question. Why didn't one of the deeply offended students, instead of calling up the lynch mob via social media on their smartphone, simply raise their hand and with due respect express their misgivings about the film and ask Professor Shank to explain exactly why he was showing it? What in heaven's name happened to giving a respected professor the momentary benefit of the doubt by asking him to explain himself? Ah, simpleton that I am, there is the whole of the issue. Given the gender and racial politics of today, many students would actually prefer to be offended and play the victim than to be educated. They perceive themselves as political vigilantes, ever watchful for real or imagined offense, prepared to pillory via social media and emails to the administration anyone, regardless of age, race, gender, or position, anyone they would identify as a danger to their personal identity politics. We are reminded here of that famous The Twilight Zone episode entitled It's a Good Life that first aired on November 3, 1961. Here's how Rod Serling, 1924-1975, who wrote the screenplay based on a short story by Jerome Bixby, introduced the episode. Tonight's story on the Twilight Zone is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. This, as you may recognize, is a map of the United States, and there's a little town there called Peaksville. On a given morning not too long ago, the rest of the world disappeared, and Peaksville was left all alone. Its inhabitants were never sure whether the world was destroyed and only Peaksville left untouched or whether the village had somehow been taken away. They were, on the other hand, sure of one thing, the cause. A monster had arrived in the village. Just by using his mind, he took away the automobiles, the electricity, the machines, because they displeased him, and he moved an entire community back into the Dark Ages just by using his mind. The people in Peaksville, Ohio, have to smile. They have to think happy thoughts and say happy things because once displeased, the monster can wish them into a cornfield or change them into a grotesque walking horror. This particular monster can read minds, you see. He knows every thought. He can feel every emotion. Oh yes, I did forget something, didn't I? I forgot to introduce you to the monster. This is the monster. His name is Anthony Fremont. 
He's six years old, with a cute little boy face and blue, guileless eyes. But when those eyes look at you, you'd better start thinking happy thoughts, because the mind behind them is absolutely in charge. This is the Twilight Zone." Unquote. We would observe that the academic Twilight Zone we've been discussing has been made possible to a great extent by current institutional leadership. So terrified are they of their young charges and the possible accusations of racism, sexism, genderism, bad gradism, etc.ism that those youngins might bring against the academy that administrators have, in no small number of cases, abrogated entirely their responsibility as educators and with it the presumably inviolable concept of academic freedom that the administration of a great university like the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, was so quick and so willing to repeatedly throw one of its best and brightest, pun intended, faculty members directly under that freaking bus is a telling and chilling example of the degree to which academic life is now imitating art, the art being the Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life. Bright Shang, himself a person of color, himself a member of a racial minority that has been historically abused in this country, managed to survive China's cultural revolution. But it remains to be seen if he'll survive America's identity politics revolution. We will revisit Bright Sheng in my Dr. Bob Prescribes post for December 7th, 2021. But for now, everybody, where do you stand on this? Talk to me. Talk to each other. Dissenting opinions are not just welcome, but called for. I'll be the first to admit that at 67, I might very well have aged out of reality as it exists today. Only one thing is for sure, and that is that I would not last more than 10 minutes in today's academia. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.